Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver strines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Am I, can you hear me up here? Is it, is it working? We were having trouble with the microphone this morning, and so uh, I just want to make sure it's audible for everybody. Hey, uh, perfect. Glad it's working. Uh, just a couple, couple notes. First of all, just following up on that gift of love announcement. For those of you who are part of Genesis, you know this is 
one of our major opportunities to love people in our city. Those who don't, um, man, that, that video was a good uh, you know, primer on what happens that day. Um, this is a all hands on deck, whole team uh, uh, event. And so really anybody who's part of Genesis, and even if you aren't yet, but you're hanging out with us, there's really the two ways is buy gifts, sign up to work that day, be part of the thing. It's a, it's a great time, but it is also one of the ways we get to really love people in our community. And it, it is formed out of a great partnership with our schools, this school here in particular. And so do that. Second thing is if you're kind of new to Genesis, if you've been coming for a few weeks, or if this is your first week with us, and the idea of eating a little Mexican food for lunch sounds good. We would love to take you out. Heidi and I would love to have lunch with you today. And so if you haven't joined us for, for that newcomer lunch yet, but you can do so today. Catch me at the end of the service or my wife Heidi who's over here uh, and just uh, get kind of the details and we'd love to join you. Um, uh, boy, our idols die hard. They really do. Uh, when, when the gospel confronts um, the things that we hold most dear, either as a culture or as an individual, we kind of fight back against that. Um, it, it, I, I mentioned two weeks ago, by the way, thank you, Kirk, for preaching last week, stepping in. We're a little out of order because our family went through crisis and Kirk stepped up here and not only preached master, masterfully, but he um, so deeply ministered to us. His message was for us, for sure last week. We needed this. And the message about Christianity not being an uh, individual event, a team sport, we so deeply felt the beauty of our team this week um, and are so thankful for our faith family. So I appreciate that. Um, I, I mentioned two weeks ago that um, the issue of sin is not the greatest issue we have. And I told you, some of you were probably going to get your um, uh, little heretic meter out and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. But, but the point, really, of the whole Bible is that the stuff that we do that is sinful flows from a posture of our heart, and there is a motivational structure of our heart that is behind the stuff we do. And the motivational structure in our heart behind, behind the stuff we do that is sinful is actually that at any given moment I choose to sin, there's a love problem that is deeper than the, the behavior, that really I'm choosing at that point in time at that moment at that that situation that what is in front of me is something that I love more than I love God I want more than I want want God that that the sin that I am doing is a path to some form of salvation at least in that moment I have set up in my mind and that we can work on behavior reform but if we don't get to the root of this issue we're never going to really deal with the brokenness of our sin and our need for the gospel if you read the Bible from cover to cover, the issue of idolatry is everywhere. It is both happening, and therefore the Bible reports on it, like we see in our text this morning, as they have this goddess Artemis, this huge, huge um, temple, this rock that fell from the sky, all of that, and this whole city who has based their sense of identity and their whole form of salvation around this goddess, it is, it is reported everywhere, yet at the same time what we find is all through the scriptures, there are warnings about the dangers of idolatry and a reminder that the reason idols are such a big deal is because they really are not going to work. They're going to leave you broken and disillusioned, disheartened because we were made by God for God and really the only thing that will satisfy the longings of your soul is the true and living God. 
And since we're in broken relationship with him, the only way that can be remedied is through Jesus Christ. And so there's been a lot of places I've, I've had the opportunity to teach. And in the teaching, I've been trying to say, listen, this is core to the biblical story. And I remember being in a class one time. I teach Old and New Testament history from Missouri Baptist University. And I'm at a class down at Jefferson College where I was teaching this class. And uh, I was talking about the danger of idolatry. The idea that what happens, listen, this is what all of us need, uh, or all of us do. All of us need to hear, we need to wrestle with this morning, is this, that what happens in our lives because the relationship with our God has been severed is that we look at all the good things in the world that he has made. The things that we were giving thanks for this morning. We turn those good things into ultimate things. So all of a sudden, something in creation becomes the most important thing in my life. I begin to serve that and give myself to that, and, and, and it can be anything and everything. We'll come back to this in a minute. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, then it's not a good thing for me anymore. It's a very bad thing. It, it, these good things, because of our brokenness and because of uh, the evil influence of the world, make promises to us that we will gravitate to. And what happens is we will take good things, make them ultimate things, and we begin to f base our sense of identity. They become pathways to certain forms of salvation. So what every idol, every form of idolatry does is it promises a form of salvation and calls us to love that which we give ourselves to. And, and, and then we will start serving it. We will start sacrificing to it. We will start pursuing it. It will become ultimate. We will reshape our God so that our God is the giver of whatever I think the salvation I want is. And as we give ourselves to that, we will find that it never satisfies it's never enough. And so I'm teaching this in a class that, you know, we can take anything, like sex and money and power and fame, and uh, it can be anything like, like my yard. But listen, we can turn our, our, the appearance of our yard into an idol. And as I'm teaching this, this lady in my class, she's over to my left while I'm teaching, as loud as she could, she hit her table. Wham! And it almost scared me. I saw several students kind of jump when she did it. And I looked over, I was like, you all right? She's like, my garden. I was like, did you leave the water on? <laughs> what, what about your garden? This is what she said. I have a huge garden. I love my garden. Everybody in the neighborhood knows me because of my garden. It is what I get my sense of identity from. Everybody comes to me wanting vegetables for my garden, and I, I love that because it makes me feel like my life has worth because of my garden. What had happened to this woman in class that day, she realized she had a garden idol. Garden's a good thing, right? But when a garden that is a good thing becomes an ultimate thing and you base your life, your sense of identity, and it creates a form, a framework for some kind of salvation, now we are in what the Bible calls idolatry. And of course, in the Old Testament, the way we get there is by making statues, but the statues and the shrines are part of a much bigger problem, and, and it becomes a central problem that we find in Scripture that the, the 
activity we do we call sin is flowing from a heart that has chosen something in God's created order that is ultimate. We make that ultimate thing that which we live for, and now we must give ourselves to it. And so as God lays out his Ten Commandments, you know, the, the central focus of the whole law of God begins with Exodus chapter 20. And listen to what it says. Uh, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verses one and two here, God is reminding them, he is the God who saves. He is the God who rescued them. He has already delivered them. That hope and, and their, their sense of worth and sense of being should be wrapped up in the God who saves. But this is what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is not a statement of saying, okay, there's a whole bunch of gods, put me at the top of the totem pole and I'm good. He's saying, listen, it is one true and living God that he is defined by the scriptures. He is the real God, the God who exists, the God who is. And he's looking at his people saying, listen, do not set up other things that become gods in your life. No other gods. And then he says in verse uh, four, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, nor that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As, as God lays out his top 10, which become the, the, the groundwork for all of the laws of the Bible, he does not start with behavior. He starts with the posture of our human heart as it relates to who is God. Now, the reason God does this, theologically, the reason God does this is that when Adam and Eve are in the garden, the first two people are in the garden, the temptation to eat fruit is there. So, so there's a piece of fruit. But if you get fixated on the fruit, you're going to miss the whole point. The serpent looks at Adam and Eve and says, listen, if you eat of that fruit, God put that fruit in the garden, and, and he is now keeping it from you. God is a cosmic killjoy. If you eat the fruit, you can stand up to God. And the issue of the fruit is not whether it's a pear or an apple or a banana. I would choose a banana personally. The issue of the fruit is who gets to be God. Adam and Eve make a conscious choice that is this. I don't want a God. I want to be God. I want my existence to revolve around me. I don't want somebody else telling me how to live my life or what to do. I want to be the center of my existence. The outcome is that Adam and Eve, and you and me by extension, have been, been unmoored, disconnected, from our relationship with God, but God made us for worship. He made us to worship. He made us to, to find and to love and to, to find things as ultimate and beautiful in our lives. And he made that so that we will find him ultimate and most glorious and beautiful, that we would lift our eyes and, and see the wonder of God through the things that he has made, through his work in our life. But what we really want is to be the autonomous center of my own existence. And the outcome that this text, this, this Exodus text is speaking to is what, what will happen is that as our broken and, and sinful hearts are unmoored from knowing the true and living God, 
we then go on a quest for something that will give us joy, purpose, and meaning in life. And, and we will start down a pathway that leads us to idolatry every time. Here's what I want you to understand very, very clearly this morning. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, your heart is an idol factory. There are shiny things around you that are calling to you that say, I have salvation. If you will come to me, your life will have meaning and sense. There are things around you that you are basing your life upon, that you are building your identity on, that you are, you are pursuing while you're also trying, if you're a believer in Jesus, to pursue Christ. And what you really want them to do is you want your idol and Jesus to stand side by side. And this is what this message is going to address. We must know where our idols lie, and we must understand that the cross is always a confrontation to those idols. And so this is what God says to his people. He says, what's going to happen is the nations around you are going to have all these gods, but you know the true God. No other gods. But see, what happens is once I have a God, I, I create a pathway for that worship. And here's the pathway to idolatry that the, the opening of the Ten Commandments tells us. It begins with our affections. It begins with our affections that, that what will happen is you will begin to love something more than you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You will love something in this world that he made. You will take something that is in the created order and make that ultimate. And your whole heart will be set on that thing. You will believe that that thing will give you some version of salvation. And you will begin to, to, to pursue that as the ultimate good in your life. It can be all kinds of things. Listen, my children are very good things. I'm so thankful for my children. But there are all kinds of people who have turned their family into some kind of an idol. It happens when a, a, a middle school girl sees this middle school, you know, athlete of a, of a guy and she begins to believe my, my life will make sense if he likes me. It, it happens to a college student who gets in school and just they believe that, that their whole basis of who they are is rooted in how good they do, how well their grades go, how much they study. And when that starts to fail, even willing to cheat so that they can be known and be recognized that their grades will vindicate them and verify them as human beings. We end up with all kinds of idols because of the pressures that are put on, on us by the people around us. Some of us have idols because of the disapproval of our parents, and we are still pursuing things, hoping that one day mom or dad will look at me and say, you are okay. And the approval of our parents becomes the central focus of our lives. Our, our, our hearts are idol factories. And there's stuff all around us. And here's, so it starts with our affections that, that all of a sudden I love something or someone more. And then it moves from our affections that we begin to build avenues of worship. So no other gods, nothing that is center in your life, nothing that is the basis of who you are. They don't replace the true and living God with something else as the center of your affection, your pursuit, and your love, the basis of your identity. But the problem is that once we have something else that is a competing God, then we create avenues of worship. We, we begin to sacrifice for that God. We begin to give ourselves to that God. We begin to find ways to bow down. We, we, we then will we'll create shrines and images 
that create something tangible that allows me in some way, shape, or form to control the events of my life through what this god or goddess will give me. Now, in the ancient world, we end up with Artemis and the other pantheon of gods and all the, the, the myriad of gods in the ancient world. But we're so much so more sophisticated. And so we don't call them names, but they are there, these these issues that will call for our affections, and all of a sudden we love something deeply, and our sense of worth and meaning and purpose and identity is in that thing, and then we will create avenues, shrines. And if you don't think so, just take out your smartphone and see what is showing up on your smartphone the most. These are now things that our shrines of worship to our gods sit in our hands now and are made up of our Facebook feed and our Pinterest pursuits and, and, and our, our Twitter follows. Our hearts are idol factories. And what we need is redemption, but what we do is we turn then to the true and living God, and here's what happens. We turn the God whom we worship, are called to worship and give ourselves to to an object to be used so that the created thing that he made, which is something to be used, will become the object of our affection and worship. And we all are doing this. We all have a version of, I will follow Jesus if, and wherever that if is, wherever that if is, is the center of your idolatry. We need to hear this text this morning. We need to wrestle with our idols. We need to understand that God is a good God. He loves us more than anything. And our lives are consumed by these pursuits. And what happens with our idols is either you will not achieve all that your idol wants and you will keep pursuing these idols with all that you have and you will become frustrated because you don't attain them and then God will be the one who is keeping you from your idols. Or... For some of us in this life, God gives us everything that our idol promises, and it turns to dust in our hands. And our lives end up very broken. The most broken people in our world are people who have some kind of fame or money or, or power God, and they actually got there. And they realize that they are the same miserable people that they were before they had it, and their lives are broken. And so this text is a beautiful example of what happens. What happens in this text is that Paul has been traveling. Uh, Acts is the story of Paul's travels around the world, and he has ended up um, on his travels, on his what, what we call his third missionary journey. He leaves Antioch like he always did, this, this city over in ancient Syria. But instead of taking the, the, the water path, he goes up through these areas, uh, Galatia and Cappadocia and parts of Asia, visiting churches that he planted, but he ends up down here in the city of Ephesus, a massive, massive port town, fifth largest city in the ancient empire. But this town has a very specific identity that is around the cult of Artemis. Artemis is this goddess that is the goddess also, the goddess Diana in the Roman pantheon of gods that is kind of the catch-all god. She she is um, based on the um, uh, story, the twin sister of Apollos, 
But what happens with this goddess is she's kind of the goddess of nature. She's the goddess of the hunt. She's the goddess of some forms of fertility. She's considered the virgin goddess, but it's kind of weird because what happens is the way you worship the virgin goddess is by not being a virgin. You can figure that out later. But, you know, there's all kinds of things where, where, where this goddess, especially in Ephesus, becomes kind of the genie in the bottle that is anything you want. Whatever you want, she will be that for you. And over the years, what happened in this town is the worship of, of this goddess and some of the things that went on with the temple worship had turned into all kinds of mysticism and magical arts. So you have a town that is filled with occult shops and people who are doing magic, like, like black magic sort of stuff. They're, they're tampering with demons and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And even our story, uh, last time we, we talked about this text, delved into this, as we end up with this, this demon-possessed guy and these Jewish itinerant exorcists, we kind of laughed at that last time, who show up and the Jewish guy, or, or the, the demon-possessed guy, um, you know, looks at them and says, hey, I know Jesus, I'm not messing with him, I know Paul, I'm not going anywhere near him, but who are you? And then this one guy beats up these seven guys and sends them out, pantless, naked, into the world, right? And, and the power of these demons has incredible control as these people have given themselves to the worship of this goddess. The whole city's identity is based on who she is, so much so that the center of the town is a temple. We'll get to that in a minute. But what happens is Paul gets there is Paul starts preaching, just like he always does. He starts in the synagogue and preaches, some Jewish people believe, and then he goes into uh, this, this hall of Tyrannus. He rents a school building, and day after day after day, he gathers the church together, he preaches Christ, he preaches the gospel, he shows from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah and the hope of the world, that the one true and living God has made himself known in the person of Jesus, but the path to knowing this God is through a cross, and he just preaches over and over and over. One of the things I want you to notice that happens even in the story is that nowhere do we see Paul standing up and preaching against Artemis. This is one of the things that even as you hear this, because we're looking at idols this morning, there is a tendency in the church of Jesus right now to be defined by what we are against in the culture. But our hearts are our idol factors. We all have these issues, and some of these idols are religious idols. The answer to our idolatry is not to preach against the idols. It is to preach the glory of Jesus. And this is what Paul does. And the Lord sends a revival, an awakening to the city. Massive numbers of people. They had this moment where literally tens of thousands of dollars of books of these satanic, demonic, magic arts are burned as acts of repentance, of turning from the idols and the, the, the goddess that is at the center of the identity of the city. And people are coming to believe. And what happens then is that the city begins to take notice. And so um, what we see in verse 21 and 22 is an interesting thing biblically. This is just a side note, so you see it there. Paul makes a determination that he is going to head eventually to Jerusalem and then to Romans. The question is, how does Luke know this? The answer, to be honest with you, is because I believe that Paul has made the determination that turns into his magnum opus. He's going to finish the work in Corinth, but I believe that the reason we know this is that Paul begins to put together what we know as the book of Romans. It's the very reason it was written. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Eventually, I want to come to you, but I got to go there first. 
But what he's going to do, he realizes that Jews who are living in Jerusalem are suffering because of a famine and because of persecution. And he starts a collection. He loves the local church and even the church in Jerusalem he's going to care for. But, but Paul determines that. And then he also, then he sends two guys to head to Corinth, which is in Greece uh, over here. And Paul's eventually get there, but he sends two guys to cut across the sea here to end up over here and to encourage these churches. And one of the things he does with these two guys is he sends them with another letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians. So verses 21 and 22 in this passage are telling us about Paul's determination, what he's going to go. It's going to frame the rest of Acts, but it's also telling us about the book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and how they get where they're supposed to go and what Paul's thinking here. But then as we we get set up with this, we find out that these craftsmen, led by a guy named Demetrius, see the problem that's going on in the city. And it is this, the gospel is so deeply taking root that what the city is known for the basis of its tourism is going to be affected because people are believing in Jesus. How how cool would it be for God to do a work in our culture that people are so shaped by the gospel that it actually affects values and attitudes and commerce and politics and all the things in our city so deeply that people actually get really upset about it. That, that people see a visible difference. That's what happens here. See, what's going on here is at the center of the city, there is this temple. It's the temple to the goddess Artemis. And actually, we actually have a picture of what it would have looked like. Uh, it is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of the most important buildings. It is actually significantly larger than the Parthenon that would have been in um, Athens, on the top of the hill. It's on, it was at the center of the city, in the high place in the city where everybody could see it. But it had become so important. First of all, there apparently was like a meteorite that fell from the sky, and they interpreted this now, when they found the rock, as a sacred stone to rub, and, and, and it became you know, the, the giver of, of the promises. And so inside this temple, they, they, they had a giant statue to the goddess Artemis, And next to the statue, they would have had this stone as a remembrance of her coming to the city. And now the city understood itself as the keeper of this temple. It was the place that, like, we, this is who we are. We are the city where Artemis is most known and worshipped. And this goddess was, was really at the center of all that went on. So much so that people from all over the world would travel, it was on near a coast, so you'd get a beach for a few days, and then you got to go see this temple and worship this goddess in this shrine. And it was really the major focus of the tourism industry of Ephesus. And what, it, what grew out of this was the fact that these men, uh, these people in the city, then started making shrines to Artemis that you could take home. Little statues, little, little versions of the temple, little things you'd go uh, come and, and kind of as a souvenir, you could take this home, you could put this on your front steps, or you could put this in your kitchen or dining room. It could be up on a, on a mantle, and then you would have a, something that would remind you of your trip to Ephesus, but not only would it remind you of your trip to Ephesus, you now had a little shrine where you too could continue the worship of this goddess. Whatever it was you wanted, whatever it was you needed, you could call on her magic, you could have her cast her spells to give you the desires of your heart. She was the greatest thing that ever came anywhere when you 
pursued her because she'd give you whatever you wanted. Now, we know it doesn't work that way, but we, we pursue it, right? And so what happens in the story is that these guys who are building these items have gotten rich. They sell tons of them, except the idol trade is dropping. Their wealth is being affected. Uh, not quite so many people in the city are buying idols because there are so many people in this fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. This church is blowing up, and their lives are so being transformed by the gospel that they are no longer going to the temple. They are no longer participating in the worship of Artemis. They are no longer buying the shrines. They are preaching Christ. And now Paul becomes the center of this. And this guy named Demetrius, who's kind of the guildsman, he's kind of the union boss, goes, pulls the, the, the craftsman union together and says, hey man, this dude, when he's preaching, he's telling people that the gods that are made with hand are no gods at all. And we know that's silly. That's actually a funny statement. It is the essence of idolatry. These things that we create and we can contain in our hands are the objects of our worship. But he says, and what's going to happen is our temple is going to no longer be honored. People aren't going to come here. It's not going to be the central thing. It's not going to define our city anymore. Our identity is going to be all jacked up. Man, this is a real problem. And so they go out in the street and they start shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they get people riled up. And what's hilarious about the story is they get a, a mob, they get a crowd who's just shouting this, and they do this and they march into the theater. Now, there, there was a massive theater in Ephesus. In fact, this theater actually still exists and stands today. And this is a picture of it. This is the theater in Ephesus. This is where this story goes. So you have a stage down here where plays would be done, and then the seating. And it's seated, are you ready for this? 25,000 people. This is not a small little back alley thing. This theater gets filled with people who get wrapped up in the throng having no idea. Twice, Luke tells us, everybody was confused, but man, they got sucked in. This is the way we as humans are, right? And every time somebody tries to speak, they just start in the chant. Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Here's, a, here's kind of another picture if you were sitting in the crowd. Here's where all this is taking place, right? And they're shout, shouting and chanting, Great is Artemis! And not hearing anybody. Now, in the text, what happens is there is a group of Jewish people who go, now wait a minute, we don't want to be affiliated and associated with this. And so they send this guy Alexander to go stand in that spot to speak on behalf of the Jews of the city. His goal is to stand up and say, Paul ain't on our team. But he gets shouted down, so he can't even say that. Two of Paul's closest friends who are going to end up traveling, in fact, if you were here last week, uh, Kirk mentioned both of these guys. They end up becoming traveling companions. So while their life is in danger for a minute and they get swept up in this crazy moment and are thrown on stage, they end up being okay. But Paul stands up and he tries to go in. And what happens is that the church, the disciples grab him and say, man, you can't go there. And meanwhile, as he's trying to go in, uh, some of the, it's, they're called Asiarchs. These are leaders of the city 
who probably are now friends with Paul because they believe in Jesus, are begging him, dude, don't. It's not going to end well. This crowd is out of control. This is not, this is idolatry at its worst as people don't even know why they're enraged and, and, and in, a, in a frenzy yet. They know what their city and their hearts and their, their, their goals are, and they don't want anything messing with their idols. Listen, this story is oh too true. And believers in Jesus, we need to know that as we live faithfully for God, it's going to do something with the idols in our own hearts, and we're going to be transformed so that we no longer are going to fully embrace the idols of the culture. It is at that point where our city is not going to understand us and get frustrated with Jesus. Are we okay with that? And so what happens then is the town clerk, who's representing the Roman government, he stands up and he makes a couple basic claims. First of all, he actually says, hey, hey, Paul never said anything about Artemis. This is where I get it from. Paul did not blaspheme our goddess. He just preached Jesus. He, he didn't say anything about Artemis. Did he say the gods were made with hand or no gods? I'm sure he did. That is consistent in the Old Testament. But he did not go into to Ephesus preaching against Artemis. He preached Christ. And this guy who's the town clerk realizes that, says Paul didn't preach against this. And, and by the way, there's a remedy. Demetrius and his guys, there's a court down the street. That's where they should have gone. This is a problem. But he says, but we are in grave danger of being charged with rioting. And most of y'all don't even know what's going on. And if we get charged with rioting, what's going on here? It's the fact that the Roman government, the one thing they didn't want was mob violence and riots because that's where things get out of hand. And what will happen is the Roman government will step into this space and will deal with an iron fist to squash this. And the city will lose its freedom. The city will lose its identity. The city will lose any sense of, of the ability to stand if they don't stop this. And so then he goes, so y'all go home. And they're like, all right. And they leave just a weird, weird story. What's going on? What's going on here is how the gospel is interacting with idols. And what we need to see out of it this morning is this story. And I, I just, from the text, from the story, I want us to wrestle with a couple things, three basic things that we learn about the danger of idolatry and, and, and to wrestle in our own hearts with what that means. And the first thing is this, listen, idols are everywhere. Idols are everywhere. Everywhere we turn, there are glittery things that are calling out that says, if you will love me and pursue me, I will give you something meaningful. There are things in our world that are always speaking to us, saying salvation is really found here. There are things that are constantly calling out to us to say, your life will have meaning if. You don't think that's true? Let's just talk about our own culture right now. Every billboard up and down the highway, there are shrines to the money god who are telling you that there's, maybe there's a chance. $1.6 billion with a B. Maybe there's a chance. And what happens is we see that and we go, oh my gosh, my life would be, I, I, would, I would make it. 
It would make everything okay in my life if I could win that. And so what do we do? We create shrines and avenues of worship. We begin to go spend money that many in our culture don't even have, laying down money and giving it to the government. By the way, I hope you understand. Do you know what the lottery is? Just so you don't, I'm not for or against. I don't care if you play the lottery or not. I will tell you what the lottery is. The lottery is a tax for people who are bad at math. Just telling you. If the government walked up to you and says, give me $20, you'd be like, no, we are free people. We will never give our government money. Walk up and say, but you could get $1.6 billion. There's a chance. Okay, here you go. All right, have fun with that. But it's just everywhere. And like every news program, everywhere you go, oh, the lottery's got, I got to get my tickets bought. I got to get it because maybe I can win. And if I win, all will be right with the world. We also have it front and center in our lives right now because if you listen to radio or watch TV, every single political ad is offering some version of salvation and tell you that the way to that salvation is to not vote for that person but to vote for this person. It is the political idolatry in our culture is at a frenzy and to me it is terrifying. Because what's happening both in and out of the church is it's gone from, listen, we live in a great country where we get to have a vote to our whole society and freedom is based on you siding with one side or another. And both sides are offering a form of salvation that won't be obtained if the right people don't win. We can end up with sex gods, money gods. We can end up with family gods. Like, they're everywhere. And there's two types of idols we need to be very clear about. The first are cultural idols. These are things that are embedded in our culture. Our whole culture gets its sense of identity, and it's basically the water we swim in. This happens, if you, if you lived and grew up in, in Ephesus, Artemis was just the way of life. The worship of the practices inter, in, in, uh, integrated into the worship of Ar- Artemis as the goddess of the city was just a way you lived in Ephesus. There are cultural gods and goddesses. And uh, in, this, in this text, we actually see multiple types of uh, idolatry. We obviously see the, the, the cult shrine to Artemis and all that that means. We have Demetrius and his clan who are worshiping a money god. We end up with the Jewish leaders who are worshiping a religious god. They, they end up with a form of idolatry that is protecting their religion while they're missing Jesus, but they're protecting their religious identity and distinctives. And we end up with a national god, a national idolatry, as the fear of Rome taking everything away from them gets everybody to go home. It's all in the text. There's all kinds of idolatry. It's not just Artemis. But she is central in the city, and she is a cultural goddess that the city has embraced our culture has all kinds of idolatry, and it's really just the, 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 the water we swim in, and, and we have to wrestle and begin to see this idolatry. For example, you live in Eureka. Eureka is big on family gods. We, we have whole families who have sacrificed everything to give their children every possible experience. We have families who have left Christianity and left the church because their kid got on a soccer or a baseball team. And they're no longer practicing and really walking with Jesus. They're raising their children to believe that Jesus is fine. He will bend himself to our idols. You can believe in Jesus. But what, we, what is most important in our life 
is the pursuit of this activity, this idea, this thing for your family. Family idolatry is massive, and your family is a good thing. But if you turn your children into a god, they will destroy you, and they cannot bear the weight of your worship, just so you know. They can't bear the weight of the expectations that you're putting on them as you set them up as the object of your ultimate affection. Good thing becomes a God thing. See that? We have all kinds of, uh, we, we have idolatry that is all about the autonomous self in our culture. So, so all kinds of things about autonomy, freedom, that I get to determine myself. And what we do is we bend Jesus. We, we, we turn Jesus into a form of a genie in a bottle that will give me anything I want, but the most important thing in my life are my own dreams, wants, and wishes, the own desires of my heart. We have political idolatry that is everywhere. It is everywhere, and just like greatest Artemis, we have our own chance that large crowds of people will shout for hours. Right? We, we have sexuality and identity idols. And our culture is telling the church, you must bow to this. You must give up what the church has believed for 2,000 years and give in to the idolatry of the culture. Or you will not fit here. You will not be welcomed. So we end up with famous people who are, are marginalized just because they went to a church. Not, they didn't even express it themselves. They just go to a church and they um, the church believes in historic Christianity. And now they're marginalized because of that. So there are cultural idols. And part of walking with Jesus and growing in our faith is to begin to see where actually we are giving ourselves to the things that our culture worships. And rather than being good things, the culture has exalted them to a place of divinity. And we really are just lockstep in that and need to reorient our lives so that those things are not most important. We're not defined. It's not the source of our identity. But there's also personal idols. And these, there are, why are there so many gods in the Bible? The answer is because there are so many different versions of what salvation ought to look like. And the reason there's millions of gods is because every single one of us has defined what salvation ought to be, and now we've set this up as the object of our affection and pursuit. And, and what we will do with that is we will then bend our spirituality to be the giver of that. And the gospel comes to us and says, truly what we ought to be doing is looking to Jesus and finding our hope in him and realizing that his goal is not to give us our idols. His goal is to give us eternity. Redemption. So how do you know what your idols are? David Pallinson wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes and in the book, he has a seven or eleven question little test. I'm not going to elaborate on any of these. I'm just going to read these. We're going to put them on the screen up here. Uh, these are also on the family worship sheet this week. So if you didn't grab one, grab one, it, or it will come out on both Genesis blog and Coin and later today. You could use this. Use it in your community groups this week. Sit down with your family, talk about these. But here you go. How do you know what your idols are? How can I identify these things that my heart is drawn to, so that I know how to wrestle with those things? and, and to, to actually give them over to Christ. Here you go, number one. What do I worry about the most? I don't like that one, just so you know. <laughs> what if I failed or lost it would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? 
What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad and get difficult? What do I do to cope? What are my release valves and what do I do to feel better? What preoccupies me? What do I daydream about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I the proudest and for what do I want to be known? What do I lead with in conversations? Early on, what do I want to make sure that people know about me? What prayer, unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? And what would really make me happy? And what is my future, my hope for the future? Some good questions to ponder as we wrestle with this idea of idolatry. Idolatry is everywhere. We have things that we are drawn to, and the things that you're drawn to look a little different than the things that I'm drawn to. But we all need to know that they're out there, and the hope of this is not for self-reform. It's to find the beauty of the gospel in the midst of it. But this begins by understanding that the core problem with your heart and my heart is that there are things that are competing for the affection of Christ, and we run to those things. And they cannot satisfy. So the second thing I want you to see is that the gospel will always confront our idols. The gospel will just always confront our idols. This is what happens in the text. Paul has not been preaching against Artemis. He's just been preaching Jesus. But what happens in the story is that people come to realize, people who are coming to faith, people who are believing, coming, come to realize that they must give up this spirituality and this focus and this, these things that are clearly forbidden in scripture to those who follow Jesus, they must come give those up. And so there's this mass repentance where people burn these books because they, they come to hope and believe in Jesus. And, and just the previous verses to our text, it says this, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And see, what's happening? The gospel is being proclaimed, and as people hear the gospel, they go, listen, I have things in my heart that exalt themselves to a place where they are opposed to God. They're opposed to grace. They're opposed to the gospel. And what happens is the gospel confronts those and helps us see our need to see in Christ our all and to trust in him wholly and to believe both for the things that are promised, but also for God to see us through when it doesn't work out like I planned. And the gospel confronts our idols. And so here's Demetrius, and he has this whole speech. He doesn't get it wrong. Verse 26, he says, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. When Demetrius is speaking, he is not speaking about a false reality. It's happening. People who are trusting in Jesus are turning away from their idols and to Christ alone. The gospel has confronted the idols, but now it is through the witness and the faithfulness and the character of the church that that gospel is now confronting the idolatry of the city. And, and as those people held on to Jesus, Demetrius did not get it wrong. Listen, if this keeps going, they're going to turn that building into a church. Do you want to know what happened to that building? They moved it to Antioch and it became a church. I'm not making this up. Everything Demetrius feared would happen in Ephesus 
happened. It became the center of Christianity in that area of the world. Glory be to Jesus. Now, the gospel is going to confront our idols culturally, and you just need to know that when you hear the gospel, this is not a call to say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold on to the things that I want most. I'm going to make my idols most important, but I just want a little bit of Jesus. We're going to mix Jesus in with the idols. That's why God said no other gods, no idols. Here's why. Because Jesus does not compete for our affections. Jesus and Artemis will not, cannot stand side by side. And what will happen in all of our lives, in all of our lives, follower of Jesus, listen to me, what will happen in your life is if you want Jesus to stand next to your idol, if you want to say, I love Jesus, but I love this just as much, and I have the form of salvation that is heaven, but I also have a sense of salvation that is my sexuality, my children, my whatever it is you find as your identity, those things cannot stand side by side at the center of your affections. Either you will give this over to Christ or you will give Christ over to this. It's one or the other. And the gospel will confront our idols, which leads me to the third point for today, our idols die hard. They die hard. They die hard in our culture. They die hard in our own lives that there is going to be a fight. There's going to be something that in the center of my soul says, I have to have this. If I give this up, if I turn this over to Christ, if I bring this to a rugged cross, it means I will lose anything, everything. And, and in the midst of that, we, like they are digging in. And part of the reason is because our sinful self. Don't miss this. Part of the reason our idols die hard is that there is a spiritual reality behind all of them. There is a voice that is satanic that is saying, your hopes and dreams are not wrapped up in Jesus. They are wrapped up in this. And so you have now a battle on your hands. Our idols die hard. And what happens in this story and what will happen in our own lives is that when the gospel comes, we will either first, we will just reject the gospel. We will hear a message like this and say, man, that guy was too hard. I don't like the message. I really like a Jesus who gives me this. Uh, and so you will reject the gospel and just choose the spirituality of our culture. This is happening. There are people all over our world who are walking away from Jesus, people who grew up in church who are deconstructing their faith. And there's a lot of reasons that might be part of the story. There are some things we as the church need to clean up, but at the heart of it, what's happening is people are saying, I believe this is the path of salvation. My culture tells me I should live for myself, and I'm coming to realize that Jesus will not give that to me. So I'm out rejecting the gospel, or we will reshape the gospel to bend in the direction of our idols. And so we end up with a health and wealth gospel that says, believe in Jesus, he will give you everything you want. Just say the right prayers, do the right mantras. It's, it's actually in that version of the gospel that is so, like, huge churches. It, like, I want to curl up in a ball when I realize that the largest churches in our city are the churches that are preaching this nonsense. And I will tell you, it is crazy how much the message these churches are preaching are rooted not in the story of Scripture, but in the occult. They have taken the books that were burned and added Bible verses to them. That's what they've done. And, and, and so we will reshape the gospel that will bend to our idols. 
The problem is that our idols cannot make promises they cannot deliver. They end up ruining our lives. And so our hope here is in the gospel. Third, we will believe the gospel and that Jesus is enough. And so here's what happens for all of us this morning. In the midst of our idols, in the midst of these things that we have exalted in our own hearts and in our culture is most important, there is a cross that beckons and calls us to come and die. But in the middle of that cross, that, that, that gospel, that story of Jesus, the call to come and die, is the promise that only here will you find a truer identity, a better hope, a fullness of life. Whatever it is you think your idols give you, they will fail you. Fail you miserably. But Christ will give you the better version of that. We think money can save us. We may never have the money, but the full and beautiful promises of the blessings of God come through the cross. The only way, like, we're not going to solve our idolatry problem by digging in our heels and going, okay, I'm not going to worship idols. Doesn't work. We're going to solve our idolatry problem by lifting our chins and seeing the glory of something that is better. And that's the offer. Jesus is so much better. The one true and living God is true. He is faithful and just. He will see us through. Right? And so, so how do you deal with this? The band's going to come up here. I just want to give you two little, like, applications. Um, and, and before I get to that application, I will start with, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the first promise or the first what I want to offer to you is the fact that Christ is better than whatever it is you've made ultimate in your life. Come to Jesus. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that today, about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to turn from our idols. But as a church, let's lay our political, our, our economic, our social idols to the side. Let's run to Jesus. What are some things you do? Well, first thing I want to tell you is you, we need to learn the art of preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time. We need to see our idols. We need to know that they're always there. We need to know that I am... I am drifting all the time and the the answer to that drift is this is to see the beauty and glory of jesus to to fall in love like our, our path to idols starts with our affections and the way we reshape that is to keep running back to jesus and reminding ourselves of his goodness right to see he is he is so beautiful and he is so worth it right and the other thing that actually shows up over and over again is where we started this morning, we're gonna come back to in a minute, is thankfulness. Believe it or not, the problem is that I take something he made that is good and I make it ultimate. One of the ways that I can remedy that is to keep reminding myself that this in my life is there because God has given it to me. And I enjoy it in the way he designed with thankfulness to the God who made it. Thankfulness is, is huge. It is a huge arsenal in the believer's, um, you know, quiver to battle the tendency towards idolatry when I see that my wife and my children, my, my finances, my home, whatever it is that is out there are gifts from God and I begin to give thanks for them rather than letting my heart center on those things and turning them into the ultimate object of my affection. Thankfulness to the one who gave it to me and then walking in obedience with, with the way he gave it is key. So our hearts, hearts are idol factories, 
And the way we riveted that is by lifting our chin and loving Jesus. And so we close today with worship because every week that's the goal, to reorient our hearts to the gospel as we wrestle with the idols of, of our own culture and our own lives. We're going to pray. We're going to do that. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And, and I know that our hearts are bent in this direction. But when you invade our souls and you, you fill our lives, we will see your beauty and it will help us put to death and lay our idols aside. So just help us today wrestle with the meaning of this text and the meaning of what you said to us through it. In your name I pray, amen.